This is part two of a sermon that I started last week, and I had an ambitious goal last week to try to briefly explain in one sermon the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and the devil. And uh, so it was brief, but we were successful in getting through those first three characters that are mentioned in the opening sentence of Luke chapter 4. And this morning I have another ambitious goal, and that's just to make three observations about these three temptations that Jesus faces at the beginning of his ministry. And those observations are first, how the devil operates. Just want, to, want us to just notice how the devil operates. Because the way he operates here is the way he operated in Genesis chapter 3 and the way he's operating today. Second, what Jesus' response reveals about his values. So there's a lot of things we could say here about Jesus' response, but I specifically just want to say it says something about what he values. And what Jesus values is what we want to value. So we want to notice that and then pick that value up for ourselves. And then third, notice or observe the tactics or practices Jesus employs to withstand the devil's temptations. So if we're going to be attacked by the devil, and we are, Jesus has certain practices and tactic, tactics. My guess is if Jesus needs them, pretty good guess that we're going to need them as well. And finally, I just want to see how this all comes together in, at the devil's final temptation um, of Jesus in Matthew 26, which is the passage that we just read. So first of all, how the devil operates. Let's first just recall what Jesus himself says about the devil. John chapter 8, 44. He was a murderer from the beginning. He is a liar, the father of all lies. So the goal of Satan is death and destruction and the means by which he reaches that goal is deception. Death and destruction, that's what, I'm head, that's what I'm trying to accomplish. And my primary means of getting there is deception or lying, getting us to believe in a lie. Uh, a gentleman named John Mark Comer recently published a book called Live No Lies. Live No Lies. And he's just talking about the lies that we absorb from the culture, how we can fight against those lies. And in his book, he has a little helpful flow chart, and I just want to try to uh, verbalize it to you. And you can, you, know, you can feel free to agree or disagree or pick apart, but here's how he sees sort of the devil operating. First of all, <coughs> the devil introduces a deceptive idea. He plants something in your mind, a false narrative, a lie. It may not be an open lie, it's just some sort of deception to get you thinking in a different way. I had one narrative in my mind, but he's introduced an idea, and now I'm formulating a different story about what's real or what I need to do. You might think of it as a, a faulty mental map. All of us have mental maps. You get in your car today, and you don't need your GPS to get home. You know, you take a right and then you take the next right. You just, you have a map to get home. And we have maps in our minds about our relationships with our spouses or our friends or our relationship to work. We have all these mental maps. This is how it's supposed to work. And Satan's trying to introduce a different map. Hey, why don't you live by this map? First thing, he introduces a deceptive idea. The second thing, then he preys on a disordered desire. 
He takes a good hunger, hunger for intimacy, a hunger for food, a hunger for meaning. These are all good, good desires. And he exaggerates that to say, oh, now I can't live without that. I must have it. He exaggerates a desire. It gets disordered. And then if we act on that disordered desire, if we buy into the idea, then we act on this disordered desire, then the final part of his flow chart is it becomes normalized or we rationalize it. We bought into the lie, and we don't want to be the only ones who bought into the lie. We don't want to think ourselves as unusual, so we want everyone else to buy in so we're normal or we rationalize it in our mind. Everybody does it. It's not hurting anyone. It's no big deal. I deserve it. These are all sort of rational arguments that you have in your mind. And we have to have those in our mind in order to feel good about living the lie that we have bought into. Now, let's just turn to Genesis chapter 3 here, and you can just see it play out. Most of us are familiar with this story. Satan introduces a deceptive idea. He begins casting suspicion on God's word. You see it there just in those opening verses. Did God really say? I'm not coming right out with a lie. I'm, I'm using a deception. I'm trying to introduce an idea like Eve. Have you ever thought about holding up God's word and you being the judge? Instead of God's word judging you, no, no, let's step back now, Eve, and and use your mind, use your facilities to, to judge God's word. Let's examine it for ourselves. Is what he's saying true? Are you sure you heard what he said? And this suspicion is followed by a lie in verse 4 when he promises that Eve won't die if she takes to the fruit of the tree. And then notice it's quickly followed up by a counter-narrative. He's trying to introduce a new mental map. See it in verse 5. But the servant said to the woman, you will not die. So we've gone from deception or suspicion to a lie. And then just quickly, just so she doesn't have time to think. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. What a temptation. Satan introduces a mental map. Don't you think God's word is harsh? I mean, did he say you can't eat of any tree? Doesn't that sound harsh? And you know what? He might be withholding good things. There's things about God that he has that he hasn't given you. That's not right. Satan's key destinations on our mental maps is that God's words are harsh and he's withholding good things. These are two primary stops on his map. You start believing that his words are harsh, his boundaries about things are too narrow, they're too confining, they're not life-giving, then you're starting to buy into the lie. And then if you start saying, I think there's something good out there and God's withholding it from me. This is buying in. Then Satan prays on a disordered desire. He's already planted this idea. And notice in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, this, this uh, good desire for food now becomes a God-sized desire. I've got to have it. It's a delight to my eyes. It's a desire to make me wise. 
he magnifies these good desires, my physical desires, my emotional desires, my mental desires, and he uses it to create a, a new reality. I don't know if you've ever heard of terraforming. Ever heard of that? Sometimes you hear about it in uh, reshaping a large land mass. Sometimes you might hear it if you like space exploration and you've got to terraform a new planet in order for people to live on it. That's what Satan is doing. He's terraforming. He's a master cartographer. He's putting a different map in your mind to say, I know you've been living by this reality, Eve, that God is good and he wouldn't withhold things, but here's another map. He can't quite be trusted, and you know he can't be trusted because he seems to be withholding something good. It's very interesting to me that today, and many of you have read articles like this, in scientific discovery, there's a neurotransmitter called dopamine. And it's usually associated with pleasure or reward. So something good happens or you perceive as good and you have a dopamine hit. You get a reward, you get a sense of pleasure, and it actually rewires your mind. That's the way the scientists say it. It reshapes your mind. So you can get it from pornography. You can get it from purchasing you can get it from social media. You can get it from gaming. And the more you get likes on your social media, you get a little dopamine hit. You go, wow, that felt good. I need to get more likes. And you get more likes and you get more dopamine and it, it just keeps you in this vicious spiral until you're addicted to it. And the dopamine doesn't give you the same pleasure anymore until you get more and more and more of it. That's how scientists would say it. This is exactly how the Bible is describing it. Satan's coming in. He's introduced a deceptive idea. He's taken a desire, a good desire to be liked, and he stretched it out. So now you have to have it. It's very powerful. Finally, when you buy into the lie and you act on it, you have to normalize it. And you see what Eve does here, verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good. She took of its fruit. She ate it. And what did she do? She gave some to her husband. Hey, you have to buy in too. Literally, everyone in the world is bought in to this lie at this moment. Adam and Eve. They're everyone in the world. I can't be buying into the lie by myself. I've got to get other people to buy into the lie to say, oh, this is good. You've got to say the same thing with me because I need to feel like I'm doing the right thing. Even though I know really I bought into a lie, I've got to bring people along to make me feel like I'm doing something that's normal. This is the way Satan works. This is the way he operates. It's the way he operates in my mind. It's the way he operates in your mind. It's the way he was trying to operate with Jesus and Adam and Eve. You see this working out in a hundred ways in our culture. If you just kept up with the news this past week, big controversy about Facebook. Uh, this woman came to the Congress. She was a whistleblower. She was, used to work, work for Facebook. I don't really know why this was news, uh, but she comes to the Congress and she says that social media is hurting people, especially young women. Now, I guess it was an insider. Honestly, I don't keep up with that kind of news that much, but I just thought this, this isn't a newsflash, but somehow it became a newsflash today because she's speaking to Congress. Her name was Frances Hogan, I think is how you say her last name. Here's what she said. 
Facebook intentionally steers young users towards damaging content. A third of the girls are led to destructive body image issues, increased anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts after spending time on social media. A third of the users of these young girls are depressed after spending time on social media. I bet some of you have had that same feeling. He uses, the Satan takes this constant flow of image that everybody's life is perfect. I'm not happy like they are. They have all these things I desire. They ne- you never post an argument with your spouse. Never post anything negative. It's all, everything's, you know, perfectly organized just so it makes your life look perfect. And you have a mental map now about what beauty is or happiness or success, but it leads to shame and separation and destruction. And few things could be more normalized or rationalized than social media. Facebook reportedly is exploring the idea of creating an Instagram page for children under 13 now. So you take images, mental maps. This is the way that my body is supposed to look. This is the life I'm supposed to have. You incorporate them. You digest them. You say, this is what's normal. You buy in. You get other people to buy in with you. And it doesn't lead to joy. It leads to shame. It leads to separation happens all the time, happens to me, it happens to you. This is the way Satan operates. Second, we're going to see how Jesus responds. And we'll just look at these three temptations. First of all, I'm going to just put them as values. First value, patience over exercising personal power for physical satisfaction. This is what we see Jesus valuing in this first temptation. He values patience over exercising my personal power for my physical pleasure. This is a value we're all going to have to incorporate in our lives. Notice just in verse 3 and 4, now here we are in Luke chapter 4. If you are the Son of God, God had just announced that Jesus is the Son of God. You could look back at Luke chapter 3, 22. At the baptism, God says, this is my son. And very literally, the next thing that happens is a genealogy, but that's just an insert. The next thing that happens is a conversation with Satan, and Satan's saying, well, how do we we know you're the son of God? See, he's introducing a deceptive idea if. I mean, Jesus, up to this point, for these past 30 years, you've been trusting what God has been saying, but maybe you should be suspicious. I mean, it seems like if you're the son of God, you should have food. You see how he draws you in? I mean, I'm the son of God and I'm starving. And so maybe you aren't the son of God. Or maybe God is withholding something from you good. Same thing as what he was trying to do with Eve. Satan's advice to Jesus is, Jesus, take the wheel. You know that uh, country music song? Jesus, take the will. Take control. Decide for yourselves. Use your own power to satisfy your physical needs. This is just a repeat of Genesis 3. And Jesus responds by quoting Scripture. Deuteronomy 8, 2. 
basically saying, Jesus, this, or Satan, this has happened to the Israelites. God has brought me into this wilderness for testing to see if I will live by his word or I'll live by my physical desires. That's what I'm here for. Before I start any ministry, God wants to test. He wants to try and say, hey, are you going to live by my word or are you going to live by your physical desires? Think about the power of that temptation for you and I. Are you really going to trust God's word or are you going to trust your internal hungers? If God's word says go this way physically, and you say, well, but my body wants to go this way physically. See, you got a choice. This is the moment. This is what I was talking about a few minutes ago. This is the moment to decide which one am I going to trust. Am I, I going to lean on my physical desires or am I going to lean on God's word? And Jesus passes the test. Jesus values patience over personal power for physical satisfaction. Second value. Jesus values suffering and worship of God over comfort and ruling the world. Jesus values suffering and worship of God over comfort and ruling the world. Let's look here, verses 5 through 8. And the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He said to him, I'm going to give you all this authority and glory. Verse 6. All you have to do is worship me. Back in John chapter 3, 21, Jesus was baptized, which is kind of an odd thing. Why does Jesus need to get baptized? It's a way of of Jesus saying, I'm going to stand where sinners stand. That was his first act of ministry. I'm going to identify with sinners. And that begins with baptism. And Jesus is well aware if he's going to identify with sinners, the way he's going to have to live his life is through suffering. He knows the Bible, Genesis 3.15, Exodus 12, Isaiah 53. He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Jesus knows the Bible. He says it himself in Luke 24. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus will be given all authority and glory, but it goes through a cross to get the crown. And Satan comes in and says, hey, you deserve authority and glory. Let's just take a shortcut around suffering. Anybody here good for shortcuts around suffering? Yeah, I am. I love that. I'm happy to get out of suffering almost at any cost. And that's exactly what Satan's doing. He's coming in and saying, hey, you deserve it, so let's just give it to you. Let's just give it to you in a different way. And my question is, why why is that bad? He's going to give Jesus what Jesus is going to eventually get. And there's a couple of obvious reasons. One, the devil's plan was a step away from the divine program. It's a new map that doesn't include the cross. Let's take a shortcut. What a temptation. But Jesus knows if he doesn't stand in the place of sinners without suffering, there's no salvation. And most obvious, he asks him to worship. Worship me. And when you think about this requirement of worship, what I don't want you to think about is Jesus has to bow down or raise up his hands and make a big deal about Satan. That's not what Satan's asking for right now. 
It's not what he's asking for, from us right now. Don't want to have that. We don't have to get a, a tattoo with a pentagram with a circle around it and say, hey, I'm for Satan. That's not what he's talking about. Something much more subtle, something, something you and I might easily fall into. And that is, if you could just take anything, anything good, and make it a little bit more important than God, that's worship. I just want you to take anything. I don't care what it is, but in this case, he's just using power and authority. But you can take anything and just say, I want you to just take this really good thing and just make it a little bit more important to God. And if I can get you to do that, then you're worshiping me. It's not a tattoo. It's not bowing down. It's not raising your hands. It's just taking a good thing and just elevating it above God. I've heard people say something like this. I used to believe in God, but then I asked for something. Usually it's something important. Something that is a point of crisis, a point of pain. It's quite often something reasonable or good. But God didn't deliver. What good is it to serve God if he doesn't give me good and reasonable things? So I walked away. Ever heard that? Ever felt that? What's wrong with that? The person is identifying to them the good thing that's a little bit more important than God. This good and reasonable thing I asked for and I didn't get it. And now that I didn't get it, so what use is it following God? You see, it tells you a little bit about their priorities. This good thing is just a little bit above God. That's, that's worship. That's an exchange. And I just want to say this kind of thinking affects everybody. When I was 22, my mom was dying of cancer. She endured, endured 14 difficult months before her death, from diagnosis to her death. And in June, two and a half months before her death, she, she was just in pain and couldn't move her, her head, her arms. Day after day, had this screaming prayer. Some of you have had this with God. It's not a conversation. It's a cry. God, I know she, she's not going to live. That's okay. I've sort of come to a resolve that. But can you take her now? What, what purpose is this serving for her to continue to live in this kind of pain? If you don't do it, then I just can't believe in you. Seemed like a reasonable request, but it was a request denied. But you see, it exposed something. This painful moment exposed something in me. The way I want God to rule the world is more important than God himself. See, I have a way in which God should operate the world. It seems very reasonable to me. And if he's not going to work inside of that, then I just can't buy into God. Well, what am I saying then? I'm God. 
I've got the most reasonable plan about all of creation of how things should work out. But of course, that's not what I feel like I'm saying at that moment. I'm crying out in anger and anguish. But I just want you to know at those moments, those are the moments Satan comes in to say, make this just a little bit more important than God. Paul, this is a good thing, being perfectly reasonable. And if God doesn't give you this, you should walk away. Suffering and worship didn't win out over comfort and me ruling the world at that moment. And my guess is some of you are in that battle right now. I hope you can step back and say there's glory, but it might come through a cross. There's a crown, but it might come through a cross first third value, third temptation, very quickly. See it in 9 through 12, trusting God over testing God. I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to test God. So Satan takes Jesus up to this very high pinnacle and says, let's jump off. off." He misquotes uh, Psalm 91 and says, look, if if we can really trust God, let's put him to the test. Satan is so slick here. This whole wilderness, wilderness experience is a place to test Jesus. And Satan says, hey, let's not put Jesus on trial. Let's put God on trial. Let's test God. And so often we find ourselves doing that. I just, I just need to put God to the test and see if he's going to work out. And if he works out, then I'll believe in him. So you put yourself in front there. And Jesus calmly quotes, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Instead, you trust Patience over exercising personal power for physical satisfaction. Suffering and worship over comfort and ruling the world. Trusting God over testing God. And when Jesus emerges from the wilderness, you see in verse 14, he's full of power. He's, he's taken on, he's in, digested these values and saying, now I can step out and I'm not going to be, I'm not going to succumb to this temptation to use my, phys, my powers to, to answer my physical appetites. I'm not going to do these things. Tactics and practices. Now, here's where I decided I got too ambitious. I wanted to make three great ops, four, three or four great observations here, but I'm out of time now. And some of you are going, but this is the key part, Paul. This is what I need. I knew the first part of your sermon. I need tactics. I need practices. And well, you'll have to exercise patience over personal power. It's a little test for you. We can just see what Jesus does: silence, solitude, scripture, prayer fasting. He's got these five practices. Silence, solitude, scripture, prayer, and fasting. If you don't have some lineup like that in your life, you're not going to win when you come out. And we'll, we'll capture some of these as we walk through Luke, but we just don't have time to do that today. But I do want to close with this final observation from Matthew 26. Again, a familiar story with the Garden of Gethsemane, and I'm calling this the final wilderness. So at the beginning of Jesus' temptation, he's in the wilderness, and Satan is tempting 
him. Now in Matthew 26, he's in another wilderness, I'd say the final wilderness, and Satan comes back to tempt Jesus, and we're going to see all the values come back in at this point, I believe, and I'll just point them out to you. What we, we see Jesus doing is he has to choose now, just like when he stood in the place of sinners at the baptism, is he going to stand in the place of sinners at the crucifixion? That's the temptation. See, at his baptism, he knew it was on the way, but it's still some distance away. But now we're, we're facing suffering in the face. Is he going to stand with us? And we see Jesus employing these practices. He's silent, solitude, scripture, and prayer. These are all the things that's happen, happening in the garden. And just notice Peter, Peter, the one who promised to stand with Jesus, what he's practicing is sleeping. And when it comes times to take a stand, he runs away. See, if, you're pra- if, you, if you have aspirational practices to get up in the morning and read and pray, to fast one day a week, but you don't actually do them, when it comes to a temptation, you're not going to stand. You're going to run away. G- Peter's a perfect example of it. He's not ready. He's not ready. He will be. And we see all these values on display here. I just want to point them out to you as we close. Verse 50 through 53. Jesus said to Judas' friend, do what you came for. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Behold, one of those who was with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew out his sword. This is Peter. This is Peter's answer. See what Peter's answer is? Personal power. I'm going to use my personal power here. He cuts off the ear and Jesus says, put back the sword. Don't you think I can call on my father and he's going to send 12,000 angels to me? See, Jesus right here, he has a moment. Am I going to exercise my personal power? What a temptation. I can call 12,000 angels right now. Or I can go to the cross. See, what, what he determined, what got tested and tried back in Luke chapter 4 is now coming out at this particularly tough moment. No, I'm going to keep moving forward. I'm going to stand in the way of sinners. Verse 39, when he does this prayer, Lord, if there's any other way, I, I don't want this cup of suffering to come by me, but your will be done, not my will. See, I would rather take suffering than the road to comfort. And verse 53 and 54, I'm not going to call angels to my rescue. I'm not going to put God to the test. It says here that he says, but all this has taken place that the scriptures, see, I'm going to trust God's word might be fulfilled. Even in my death, even if it means my death, I'm going to trust God's word. These are the values and practices of Jesus. This is how he took his stand against Satan's schemes. The Bible says, don't be caught unaware of Satan's schemes in your life. And I wonder if you just understand how he operates on your life. If you just are aware, okay, this is a moment. That's why I try to take a moment right here after that song. Because that's how it happens. 
It's little moments where I just get to decide, am I going to explode internally? Am I going to get angry? Am I going to get frustrated? Am I going to take it out on other people? Or am I going to say, hey, it's just, this is just a little test. Paul, and you're gonna, you, you get to show your whole congregation how you're going to respond right now. That's life. Life isn't a bunch of big things. It's a bunch of small decisions you get to make every time you're with your family or at your office or at your computer screen. You understand how he operates. He takes a good desire. He stretches it out and says, you've got to have this if you want to be happy. We'll talk more about practices and tactics. But if you don't have these in your life, you will be called forward to stand. And if you've been sleeping, you're going to run away. Let's not be caught sleeping. Let's pray together. Where it's such a big passage. And I'm just praying that everyone here would just take away the, the clear line that you want them to see about themselves. It might be how they're rationalizing or normalizing a behavior. It might just be unaware of how Satan's operating. It might be I don't have I actually don't have any strategy. Would you help use this patches to open our minds to who you are, to open our hearts to your reality, to trust and to walk in your ways and your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.